What's up, traders? Welcome to the Day Trading Show. Today, I sit down with my co-host, Tom Jackson, and our special guest, Mr. Steve Burns. A lot of you guys know Steve. He's very popular on the thin twit and social media space when it comes to traders. But this is the second time I sit down with Steve. We get a little bit more in detail on Steve's perspectives on markets. We talk about funding companies. We talk about mindset and winning a lot. So every trader, no matter you're a swing trader, a scalper, doesn't matter. You're going to love this episode, so make sure you stay all the way through. We get into some fun stuff at the end. Before we go further, I have a link in the description not only to connect with Steve, but also if you want to come check me and Tom and our team of funded traders out on ASFX TV, there's a three-day free trial for you guys with that link in the description, so make sure you check that out. Now, enjoy today's episode with Steve Burns. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. So today, I am sitting down with my co-host, Tom Jackson, and our special guest, Mr. Steve Burns. Now, for those of you that know Steve, that are you know current and are aware of the Twitter space on or the FinTwit space on the internet, you know who Steve is. You've seen his content, I'm sure. If you're not aware who Steve is, Steve is the author of 25 different trading books. And I just said to him before we started the recording, I think he is the LeBron James of trading authors. Like no one's coming close to him as far as who's scoring the most points. All of Steve's books are incredible. Steve also has courses at newtraderuniversity.com that you guys can check out. The books, though, Steve, I'm sure you would agree, they have transcended uh, through the internet and through just being able to ship all over the world. I mean, you're all over now. You're you're multinational. So we're very honored to have you here, Steve. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we so, uh, you know, Amazon provides a worldwide distribution. So it's interesting to have people from around the world uh, read the books and comment. So, yeah, it's really cool. It's awesome. It's it's so inspiring, honestly. And I am very grateful still, I tell you all the time, for our relationship. But also you had me on the the back cover of one of the more recent books that you wrote about technical analysis. I think we were just talking before and said the most recent book that Steve put out was about trading psychology. So we're definitely going to dive deeper into that today, Steve, because we know that that's a complicated topic. Tom and I, with the coaching that we do, we talk about how to help traders improve their psychology all the time. And there's just so many different angles of approach when it comes to that issue. So we're definitely going to dive in there. But the exciting news is Steve has really made a big move for himself. He's joined me here in Florida, and we're happy to have him. So it's a, it's a good time to be a trader in Florida for sure. Right, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect absolutely. weather every day. Perfect weather every day. Even when you're down a couple grand, you lose some money, maybe you make a mistake, <laughs> you go outside and it's beautiful. I mean, you can't be mad at that, right? You can always go to the beach. Yeah. Nice. I love it. So what's been new with you, Steve? Are you currently still trading? Are you working on a new book? What's cooking on your side of things? Yeah, right now I've just been uh, trading. I haven't written a book in, for me a long time. I guess it's been five, six months. So for me, it's a long time. I've been really <laughs> diversifying my blog and doing a lot of writing on human performance and uh, uh, success and the principles that go into success, a lot of deep diver dives into psych psychology, even beyond trading. So really, uh, New Trader U, I've you know, spent a decade writing a blog a day about trading for the most part. So now I've diversified right. into investing, did a lot of deep studies on Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, the psychology of what they've done with bit in business and a lot of the misunderstandings about what the genius of Warren Buffett is, you know, human performance, anything involved around just, uh, you know, performing and winning and being a winner and, 
and uh, the psychology of winning. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've been diversified a lot. You know, there's only so many trading blog posts you can write for. I have almost every conceivable topic you could possibly imagine. I think I, I think I started uh, diversifying more to about four, about 4,000 or so uh, trading blog posts That's in crazy. addition wow. to the 25 books. So it's crazy. You know, I probably need to find a hobby outside of trading, but <laughs> you know, I've been very busy. But you know you're in Florida now, and it's there's way more hobbies for us than normal. Like because I'm up from up north, like you are, and there's just more to do here. So hopefully you'll be able to pick something up. But that's very uh, impressive, Steve, for you to say it's been a couple of months, and that feels like a long time. Do you feel the pull to write a book right now, or do you feel like you've kind of covered it with the ones you wrote? So there's just no pull to it. Is that what it is? Well, I, I ponder like something like a more of a you know more mainstream book, something like uh, something about quantum goals or uh, you know some kind of higher level of, of psychology the psychology of success something you know that still covers trading that's the amazing thing is almost every topic can be tied to traders because it's such a tough professional sport and you have to have every other base covered uh, so I have pondered you know just doing a more diversified book that covers where more people can read it not just traders can read it but other people too so I've been I have been pondering that. Mark Minaviri has a really good one for that doesn't he the mindset of winning or something like that it's called. Yeah, he sent me he sent me a copy of that. It's really great. It's really it's just great. goes in because so people to understand is like you have to to be a trader, you have to master personal finances first. You're not going to master the market if you can't master your own behavior and personal finances. And then you have to man manage the psychology of success. You know, the the negative people like Mindervini says, the nega toilets. You know, if you're negative, <laughs> you think it's impossible, you're gonna fail. Everybody's a con artist, you know, trading's everyone's out to get you in the market, even though you're gonna fail to begin with. So you have to have that foundation. So I thought Mark's book really was a good foundation for trading, you know, even not just it was about success, but it really applies to all traders because you you have to have that mindset, that that growth mindset, not the fixed mindset. You have to be able to see that you know things are possible and things can change because it begins with the belief. If you don't believe it, you've already lost. So I think Minervini did a great job of explaining that. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it all starts with belief? Yeah, it's like you know, if you believe you're going to do something and you do the work and you yeah. put in the effort and you do the quantitative analysis and you model success, I mean, that does not guarantee success. You can still fail. You can still fail multiple times before you succeed. But if you don't even believe you can to begin with, that almost guarantees failure. You're not going to. How many negative people that don't think something's possible just stumbled in and, and succeeded anyway? That's virtually impossible. Like the mindset, and you know, and people will get mad saying, you know, trading psychology is meaningless if you don't have an edge, a statistical edge. A, quantified system which that's true as well but you the psychology is the foundation it is step one you have to have step one to go beyond that you know like you said if you have just a fixed mindset this is just the way that it is this is the way i am this is the way my life is it's impossible then you have gar almost guaranteed failure do you think that as people get older innately you move into a fixed mindset more than a growth mindset more than being open-minded you become closed-minded as you get older yeah, I, I think cynicism comes from failure. I think it can mm -hmm. go both ways. Like, you know, and I started, I, I've been saying the same thing. People that have known me for 30, 35 years know that I've been preaching the same gospel of success since I was 18 years old. I mean, nothing has really changed. It's just I have succeeded in different areas and tiers of life and net worth and, and winning and doing what I wanted to do. You know, the long, twisty, turny journey, of course, but, you know, I didn't change. You know, I first believed you know, when I was 18 years old, I would be a millionaire. I'd be successful. I love business, love capitalism. I love trading. I love investing. I would succeed in that. Sort of same thing Warren Buffett did, you know, on a thousand, tens of thousands times greater scale. But, uh, you know, he knew he'd be a millionaire when he was a kid. He knew he bought his first stock at 11. You know, he knew that it was like inevitable. It's almost, 
you're on that path and you believe it is inevitable and your successes create the growth mindset and reinforce it. But like you said, if you fail and you don't do the right thing and you have a bunch of failures and you take it personally, you start believing that you are your failure, then you can also become cynical and negative. And so there's really two paths. You're right. I mean, you can be an old, bitter old man that failed and you can be a you know, an, a, a much more wiser, smarter man who did a bunch of step-by-step wins and you know you can win. Very well said. I feel like it's just like in sports. Like Tom is a big golfer and I'm sure Tom, like, you know, it's, we always talk about Fitzpatrick, right? How he was documenting every shot, trying to make improvements shot after shot. I think it's that perspective on the process, not just the perspective on winning, like you're speaking about Steve and the belief in confidence. It's just the perspective on the process. Like the saying of, the journey is the destination. That's, I think, what is like a prerequisite if you're really going to be successful in trading. You have to know there's no perfection. There's no getting to the end. It's constantly you challenging yourself to be better than you were yesterday. Yeah, we can all look at each other and be competitive with each other, but we're all in such different places in our lives, different starting points. That's kind of, I think, in a way useless. It's always competition with yourself, you know? Yeah, I think and I think that's also, like you said, it's your, you are your greatest competition and adversary i mean what you yourself talk what you say to yourself when you win and when you lose what your beliefs are i even think it's the point where you know what you believe goes to your subconscious level but the power of written goals aren't really like you wrote down a goal so you're going to get it but the power of the written goal is you've told your subconscious what you want so your subconscious will start helping you get that and it's really crazy you know, when you do that, you write a written goals, and I've seen this over and over and over again with so many studies. Even Jim Carrey, you know, the, the actor wrote himself a check what he would make, and when he dated it, and he ended up you know, getting the part because you program your subconscious on where you're going. And it's crazy that a process like Michael Jordan's process, his work ethic, what he did to be so good, a lot of it came from his own belief system itself. Like you do have to have a process. You do have to have an edge. You do have to have a work ethic. You do have to have all that. But it really comes from the beginning of the belief system itself. You know, Michael Jordan stepped on the court. He knew he was the greatest basketball player there ever was and would ever be. <laughs> he knew that. Everything else, his process, his training, he went, you know, and it's almost like you know if you're the best, you're going to go train for four or five hours a day. You know, he had the energy, the drive. You know, he wasn't going out there to play a game and make his pay for the day. Michael Jordan was going out there to be the best basketball player to ever play. And that's just a totally different mindset and energy level that comes to that when you approach anything like that, I, I believe. 100%. And it's like balancing at that level, balancing, keeping confidence, keeping competitive with everyone around you and thinking I'm going to be better than all of them, but still realizing it is just you versus yourself at the end of the day. If you're competing at that level, it's you versus yourself, you know? Reading and yeah, writing is obviously... I was going to ask a question. I was going to say that reading and writing is obviously a very big part of your process or has been for a long time. What's the belief behind that for you? And how has it sort of impacted your trading and your journey over time? It's, it's interesting, you know, when it's sort of the same thing with journaling, you know, if you write a book about op options trading, then you have to know options trading inside and out and you have to learn, you have to know, you have to, even if you've read, you know, read a hundred option books, I had to put it in writing and put it in my own book. It's crazy how that clarifies your thinking process. It makes you put to connect all the dots together in a quantified systematic way for yourself in a book. And it really just the the enlightenment it gives you is pretty incredible. I think some of my best trading months ever came after books about specific topics. It's crazy that I think my best option trading ever came within months of me writing my option book. It's, awesome. it's a lot like journaling in a way. You know, I really started as an Amazon book, trading book reviewer. At one time, I was the at the peak of uh, my Amazon. I was like back 2005-ish, you know, 
uh, I was like the 150th, mo 153rd most helpful Amazon reviewer because I had reviewed it before I stopped. It was like 400 something trading books and I was oh. 153 of total Amazon. And it was like writing a book report on every trading book. So it really helped you solidify and qualify what you've learned over and over and over. It's just, you just do it over and over. And it's crazy how it works. It's a lot like trade journaling. You, you know, if you want to be an expert on something, you know, teach it, write books about it, talk about it. And, uh, and network people who are experts in it. And that, that's really helped me in my journey dramatically. Unbelievable. I, how do you filter out what to use and what not to? Because I sometimes feel in my trading or see it with other people that there can be like information overload. And sometimes when I've done it, it's led me to be paralyzed in the market at times because there's, there's some contradicting things in there, and et cetera. How have you managed to filter out over so much information? I think the key learning was your own mental model of how you approach the markets, you know, what your beliefs are about it. What is your screen time available to trade with? You know, what is your system? And you can, and you, you start your learning stage, like you said, cause I was like, just, you know, I was reading so many books and I was really big into investing in uh, you know, value investing and even tech stocks in the 1990s. So I really came from an investing standpoint. So I, as I read and kept on studying, I, I started learning, you know, the lessons I learned from the dot-com bust, I no longer wanted to hold stocks like that all the way down. I would not do that again. So I really evolved into what was comfortable for me. So I filtered through, you know, what do I believe about the markets? What is my system? What is my edge? How am I going to make money? What am I most psychologically comfortable with? How much is the drawdown that I can deal with? You know, what is the annual returns I want to try to make? And you know, once I knew what I wanted, my goals for trading and investing and compounding capital and my screen time, how much time I wanted to spend doing it. Once I knew what I wanted, then my filter process was, would this help me get towards those goals? You know, the markets I traded, the watch lists I traded, you know, the back test I did, what do I, what, what, what charts fit my signals even? I mean, it was just really a quantification down to my ideal trading system for me based on my own belief systems and how I could have an edge and how I wanted to make money. It, it really came down to just filtering. That's great advice. I think people are going to find a lot of value in that. Yeah, it was very well said. Was yeah. any of the information, I'm just curious, when you read all those books and wrote all the reviews, were people repeating a lot of the same information? And what did you think of that if there was? Like, did it make you think I should trust this more since everyone is saying it? Or are you like, I'm skeptical of this because everybody's just repeating the same stuff? Yeah, it's amazing the kind of regurgitation where it's like just no point, you know, because out of 400 books, so one thing I learned too is I probably could have read about 10. That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would have more value than the 390 could have been good for like wallpaper or something because it's just like the most <laughs> generic silliness. Uh, you know, they people worry about now about chat GPT, you know, some of those trading books in the 90s and 2000s were just like the same things, like people just like, like Wikipedia. It's like there's no real life actionable execution it's just all almost academic like right. those are all theories these are people that are, that are writers not traders that have never put you know never you know put a, a six-figure trade on they've never lost three thousand dollars in the morning or five thousand in the afternoon or made ten thousand in a week they've never done that you can tell by reading it so so yeah it, i narrowed it down to about 10 that i thought and it was the macro elements what what i found the most fascinating i think going through the whole spectrum was some of the same edges and principles that Warren Buffett uses can apply to even scalpers and day traders. It's like the, the edge, like the, like a risk or ratio, 
You know, right. if you're if you're a, a scalper, you might be trying to you know even work the spread or you know try to get a get a dime. You might be risking a nickel to get a dime if you're a scalper. You know, Warren Buffett's you know he's he's trying to buy a stock that you know his risk might be ten dollars in a stock, but his upside could be a hundred dollars. It could be a risk or ratio it could be nine times his entry. So risk or ratio really applies to investors, traders, scalpers, day traders, swing traders. Everyone is trying to make more the more, more possible than they're going to lose. And they all have exit strategies. You know, investor might have a fundamental exit strategy. If the business model of the business changes, they might exit the stock, while a um, trader technically might exit if their stop loss or trailing stop is triggered. Sure. And they, no. they both have risk reward ratios. They both have exit strategies. They both want to make more than they lose. Uh, and they both want to have an edge. I mean, some of, some of the basic things that, that it's across uh, all people, math, it's really the math. Do you have any Warren Buffett one-liners that stick out to you since I know you've studied him a lot? Yeah, I like his – one of my favorite – actually, what a blog post is going to go out tomorrow. Uh, Warren Buffett said, if you don't learn how to make money while you're asleep, you'll work until you die. Classic. I mean, so true. Right. It's so true. And it's it's true for you know everybody. That's, everybody. Uh, I mean, you, you, somebody's going to monetize you or you're going to monetize your skills. I mean, that's something that – that's something I love, the financial freedom, financial independence, entrepreneurialism, going into all those different things. And – uh a lot of stuff Warren Buffett gives himself away, you know, saying stuff like that while he has all the employees working for him. You know, he's sleeping and there are seeds candies out making candy on third shift while he's sleeping, probably. <laughs> he's making money through indirectly through his Berkshire ownership of stock. Of course. So uh interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially like the guy the younger guys, I not a lot of them, but some of them just don't give People like Warren Buffett or Paul Tudor Jones, even Dalio, like they don't give them the credit that they deserve for being so successful so consistently and just for such a long period of time. Do you have any other people that you really look up to in a way, Steve? Dalio, I know you've written some blog posts about him. I've seen some of my favorites, uh, really, you know, the Market Wizard books, some of those by Paul Tudor Jones, one of my favorites, uh, Ed Sakoda. You know, when Classic. I started reading Ed Sakoda's interviews, I thought, man, I'm just Yoda. Like my brain couldn't, <laughs> couldn't process, couldn't process what, what Ed Sakoda was saying. Uh, but now that, uh, but now, now people ask me questions and send emails and, uh, and I say the same. Can you hear my ice machine going? No, you're good. Huh. I think it's an ice machine. Go. Um, well, it's a code. I read it. I thought it's like Yoda. I did not comprehend it like 20 something years ago. Now people ask me email stuff and I sound like it's a code. Like saying, <laughs> you know, what's the best, what's the best system? What's the best strategy? What's the, the best student what's has the become question? What's the best for you? Right. Right. <laughs> you answer a question with another question. Yeah. Right. Okay. Ed Sakota, PTD, uh, PTJ, whatever. Yeah. Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Yeah. Uh, just, oh, I actually love the old Alexander Elder. Uh, I loved his uh, writings, the three M's of trading. The, that was uh, trading a for a living, things. right? Yes. And yes. he also did come into my trading room. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been, I've been seeing reminiscence of a stock operator keeps coming up again. And that's an old one. Yeah. Jesse Livermore. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Jesse classic. Jesse Livermore, I mean, it's like the, it's like, you know, Jesse Livermore's reminiscence of a stock operator, which was really written by uh, Lefevre about Jesse Livermore, but it no, was, uh, he had some principles that are hundred, huh? I didn't know that. Explain that again. Yeah. Just, yeah. The reminiscence of a stock operator written about a hundred years ago by yeah. it was, uh, Edwin Lefevre was the right. author. It was, yeah. it was, he interviewed him, but he was written, I think it was, it was, uh, he used a pen name for Jesse Livermore. He didn't actually use his name. Jesse oh. Livermore wrote a book called How to Make Money in Stocks. Right. Or like how to, what was it called? Just how to, it was like something, something I think that's what it is. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow, okay, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I reminisces think and how to make. Yeah, yeah, I think someone mentioned that to me recently. That's interesting. That's crazy. Do you find now, Steve, that tra- the quality of trading books? Be honest. The quality of books that you see coming out now, I don't, I don't see books other than like from you. Maybe Tom Basso has a new one that's coming out. I have him coming on this week. A couple of people, but Tom's a market wizard, so it's like there's very few of you guys that put out quality trading books. I, I just feel like there's not a lot of great quality books coming out. Because, or is it because these ideas are time tested and like, in in a lot of ways, you just need to hear it in the in the right way. It's not like we need new ideas. Do you agree with that, or do you think there is quality? coming out still I think there's some i think there's some good quantified books but like you said nine out of ten are just like content writing it's just content writers writing books with no real in-depth knowledge and definitely not trading real capital or having an understanding of what that's like right but uh did you see brian shannon's book uh yes absolutely that's one of the good the, the vwap the that is that is out that's that's one of the best new technical analysis books i've seen in a long time so good so good so well done like yours like when i pick up the book i actually like looking at it you know what i mean like that's what i said to him we had him on last week same thing i was like and when he came on i mean you know what the anchor vwap is i'm sure steve because i know you've written about it yeah. and seen it it was so simple wasn't it tom when he was explaining to us i was like this is so crazy yeah it's, it's a great answer. yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay tom I was going to say, I think he made it sound really simple, and it, it, I think it resonated because of the three elements of it that are all relevant in every trade that we take, um, that everybody takes, or something that everybody can look at. So, yeah, I thought it was a, a really, really good interview and a good book, actually. I do. I think it was a great book. He's got some great videos out there as well, good content. Yeah, a lot of people have been liking his YouTube. Were you going to say something as well on that, Steve? Yeah, I just thought that was brilliant. Sort of like the, uh, you know, what's the answer to what's the trend is the question is what's your time frame? And I think his is like, what anchored VWAP do you use? Is like, what's your time frame? Sort of the anchored V, where to anchor it from? I thought that was great. The beautiful book was just beautifully well done, well written, great charts, great examples in it. Yep, exactly. Um, that made me think, Steve, I wanted to ask you, you see all this stuff with the prop firms and the funding companies going on now and so many like younger guys getting into trading. What are your thoughts on all of that? Because I know when you got into trading, the prop stuff, it was not like this when it were so available, the internet makes it so easy to access. So what are your thoughts on the prop firms and the funding companies? Yeah, they've really lowered the barrier to entry now. That's exactly. been I could not. I mean, I had to like slowly grind up my capital myself and compound it and build it and and use margin later. And it was a long process. Now, if you can have a proven system, you can get funding. You know, I hope when I share this with my people, I hope you go into some depth and you explain to the people that listen to me because that's something I've not gone into. Is the prop trading is a shortcut to having capital to trade. Of course, they have to have proof of concept and understand risk management. They can be cut off and and understanding you know the return on prop capital versus your capital, but it can sure. give you a good boost and start. But that's something that I have not cooked because I just grinded it out myself, which is great when you actually get to it and you have the capital and you can really do something meaningful with your own capital is great. But like you said, most people cannot do that. But I think the prop trading and the technology and the even in the how much it costs to trade now with commissions and so much free commissions, it really lowered the threshold for entry into trading, which can be dangerous as well, as we saw with the biggest bubble, some of the biggest bubble assets ever in 2020, 2021, 2022. It's booming for the trading industry, but 
but uh, you know, it's also dangerous to to especially trading with prop capital when you have no idea what you're doing and taking too much risk. So I'll, that'd be a good thing for you to tell talk to my audience when I share this. So I know about anybody interested in prop trading. I've sent people to you to Thank follow you. you about that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we have some experience with it. We've been one James, as you know, James has been with me for a couple of years. James has been funded the longest. Me and Tom together are more new to it, but still over two years now, just about two years or so, where these firms have definitely been changing. And Tom said it. When we first started going down this road, he was like, they're just going to get more competitive and they're just going to give us more options. Now you have firms that are doing a million, $2 million of funding. I think though, like with any industry, and I know no one here, Tom's opinion on this too, but I just think every industry will have it, the gauntlet. You'll have the extremely successful, extremely legitimate people, and then you'll have the businesses and the people that are just not that. So I think you have to really just do your research. And if you're going to call yourself a prop trader, I think you probably would not want to do that until you were diversified with at least two different firms, two different funding accounts. Because if one is to go under, because you're not actually employed by them, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You don't know their margins on their business. So I think you want to ha have that like solid diversification. But the last point I'll make on it is just some of these kids, Steve, and I say kids because they're younger than me even, like it's ridiculous. I'm seeing $100,000 months. It's extremely motivating. But just thinking back to when I even got started in trading, that wasn't an opportunity. Like that wasn't even on the cards. If you were making that kind of money, you were scamming somebody or you were over leveraging your account full margin. And you know what I mean? It was just not happening. And now because they're capitalizing traders properly, those traders are able to make some serious cash. What do you think, Tom? I think, yeah, I think it's, we're at the start of this journey overall. I think there's going to be so many great opportunities. I think going back to what Steve was saying though, about that barrier to entry, I do wonder where we end up from a sort of a safeguarding perspective because I coming from a, a gambling in the past and knowing that there's been a huge crackdown with like depositing um, into betting accounts and they put in limits on it and people aren't allowed to take bets etc I wonder how or if there's ever going to become some sort of regulations because ultimately I think these brokers are allowed it is a form of gambling trading or investing is still ultimately a form of gambling of whether that's going to the more of these prop firms that come out, whether that's going to rear its head and whether people are going to then have to start having limits and can only lose so much of their capital, have to prove how much they can lose, et cetera. So I think that's something that we probably would need to bear in mind and any regulations that are going to change. But for now, I think make hay while the sun shines. Absolutely. Like you say, 100K a month from kids that are less than eight teenagers. Teenagers, teenagers it. but if you think that way tom don't like the regulation can come from multiple angles and then steve i'd like to know what you think it could be because this is an interesting topic the could they be regulating the firms or are they going to try to regulate us as the trader because like maybe they regulate the firms so the firm has to prove if they want to call themselves a prop firm that they're an a book broker really putting their traders through you know because really like i just put up this clip steve today with one of the new podcast guys and he was explaining the difference between these a book brokers and these b book brokers and it, it's very clear that the b book firms make money when traders fail the a book firms make money when the trader makes money so i think maybe the regulation comes in the form of that like if you're going to say you're a prop firm you've got to be an a book broker and they they to crack down in that. I could see that. I don't know. Maybe the government will step in however it can make money off of the process. But you're right. I wonder what the regulation would look at, like having like almost bucket shops where you have Forex uh, prop firms where they're not, they're trading against, they're not really executing any trades in the market. They're just running a book like a bookie against you, yep. you know, 
and, and what they what they see with that. I mean, prop firms need to be connected to actually trading in the market. I don't know how much of that goes on, especially I'm sure in other countries. I also heard stories of people that build up huge prop accounts in in, uh, in other like Cyprus and in other countries ended up like losing their capital's gone. They never get their payouts and it's just gone. And they did all that for nothing. So I've heard a lot of mixed stories. So I would definitely want to go one based in your own country or regulated in some way, wherever you're at. I, uh, I think there's a negative to it. I agree with everything you said too, Steve, for sure. I, I, I saw this video of this guy in his car talking about – did you see this, Tom? I, I think I shared it to you maybe on Instagram. It was this guy, Steve. He's like talking about how he spent this money on car parts or something, and then he's saying, I'm going to just put on a trade here. We have FOMC news coming out in five minutes. I'm not at my <laughs> desktop, but I'm just going to put a trade on and try to make back the money I just spent on car parts. And the worst part is, is he actually does it. No stop loss, okay. no nothing, just just gambling, like Tom said. And these guys sometimes get funded. And what's going on, I think, and this is why I bring this up, they they spread misinformation. Like we've talked about before in the video we did a couple of years ago, Steve, technical analysis, technical indicators, people thinking they don't work, just not using them correctly. Some of these guys push out ideas like you're not – we're the best traders because we don't lose. Like they push – great traders don't lose. When in reality, every person that comes on our podcast says the opposite is what is true. You know, So I think the prop firms have opened up the door for some of these guys that, yeah, they're using it to make money right now, but are they really going to be here eight years, 20 years, 30 years? I don't think so. You know? Yeah. I think what, uh, I think Thomas touched on something about the gambling aspect where people think trading is gambling. And, you know, that's the thing people don't realize, you know, how the best way to make money in a casino is, is own the casino. That's the best way to make money in a casino. The casino itself is a gambler. The casinos gamble, but they have an edge. And that's the, something that, uh, one of those trading books that really was life-changing was Richard Wiseman's, uh, trade like a casino, where you are looking at – this is the way they operate. You look at a statistical edge. You have some green spots on your roulette wheel. You know over you keep the – you do not let a gambler bet too much against you. You keep table limits, and you have a slight edge, and over time it plays out in your favor. Like the casinos have a mathematical statistical edge, and I think that's the same way Renaissance Technologies uh, with Jim Simmons – uh, operated that that's how a profitable trading operates you are in some nature a casino with an edge you are in the gambling business you are competing against gamblers and uh, you are gambling in, in in a way but you do have an edge so you're more of a casino and gamblers are emotional they have no edge they don't understand math like you said what you just described is pure gambling. i'm gonna put it all in black you know, there's two, there's a green or two extra on the wheel, but you know, but if I win, I'll have this much money, but I'm going to bet it all to have no management of the risk involved of capital. You can only make a few bets. You lose it all. Right. And like you just described so many people, I mean, just come in, just they're gamblers, they're not traders. Right. A trader is, you know, exchanging value and having an edge and working the math. Gambling is going against the math, having no edge, having no control of emotions, having random events that there's no way to quantify. Uh, and you're, you're, you're operating outside of a system. If you have no system, everything you do is wrong. It's just random. You don't even know what you did right or what you did wrong. So I think that touching on that was a very important aspect to people. You know, so many people, you know, know what I did in my life and they're like, you're a, you're a gambler. It's like, no, I'm more like running a casino than a gambler. Yeah. And I bet you they weren't expecting you to say that. <laughs> no. They're, they're probably like their brains hey. melted. Right. right. They're like, what? <laughs> so when you when you explain it like that, and I mean, everything in life is really probabilities, whether you I mean, to the point of the casino, these prop firms that are the B book firms that are not putting orders through, they're taking a gamble that most traders will fail. That is the statistical edge that they're playing on to 
get and make a lot of money, right? Yeah, the, the risk is where the reward comes from. That's the thing that the people like you talked about, I think they always win their egos and they're never wrong. They can predict the future and they're so smart and they're just amazing. You know, they just have the natural ability to trade and out-trade everyone in the markets and everybody. It's like, this is, those are clowns. There's no wow. such thing. If, if you were that good, you could compound capital to billions within within a couple of years. I mean, that's the thing is if you don't have drawdowns, the power of compounding in one month, if you doubled a penny, you'd have $10 million. Yeah, exactly. One month. Right. So. So if you're that good, you should be a multi-billionaire. That's not how anything works. You have a profit factor. You have a slight edge. You play out. You grind out profits. The greatest traders and investors ever, on average, made about 20 25% a year. Warren yep. Buffett, George Soros, Paul yep. Tudor Jones, the best of the very best of all time. That's about what they did. You know, you'll have some outliers like Minervini will make 100%, 200% in a few good years in bull markets that fit his edge. You'll have, you know, Livermore made a billion during the 29 crash. You'll have some outliers, but on average, that's about the, you just grinding out a profit factor. It's very, very well said. It's all about the data. Why, I'm curious, Steve, why have you never gone to work for a firm? You're so well-versed in trading. Did you ever feel pulled to go work for a prop firm or a desk in New York or something like that? When I was really, really young, you know, maybe like having a hedge fund or a mutual fund, it was one something I thought about, but just... Just it's not something I want to do. I know Tom Basso, I really felt like I was odd because there's so much money in doing something like that. You can break through and get in and raise funds. Really, you're a salesman more than anything, selling people to put capital Fund. with you. But yep. you know, yep. you turn out and I could have had some great years in the 90s. That was like that was what I was 90s and the early two after 2003. Those were great years that really fit my edge. But uh, you know, I think Tom Basso summed it up one time where Tom Basso even said if he had to do over again, he would have, have likely never even done his trend stat firm. He would have just stayed an engineer and uh, he loved his job and just traded his own capital and compounded it because of the paperwork and the regulations, the regulatory process and the selling. He said it was just not a happy experience for him. He retired, you know, Tom Basso retired young. And I, I think it was on a Covell interview. He said that, and I was like, man, I've never felt so understood, man. It's just once you just have that freedom and independence and you're just your capital, you're trading, and you're doing your own thing, and you can do other forms of cash flow too. You know, it's just it's a pretty happy life versus trying to go out and sell people on giving you their capital and have the pressure of clients pulling money because you know, I did invest some money for people. I guess that's also been like 15, 20 years ago. I did do some accounts some 401ks and 401 IRAs for people. And like that little bit of thing taught me that I would never want to manage anyone's capital after that drama because they don't understand. Right. Even my own wife, my own wife at the time in 2008, I think I was only up like single digits in, in 2008. But it was inside of her 401k. She had a corporate job and it was up because uh, I couldn't do but so many things in a, in a corporate 401k at the time. I think it was 2008 and she was disappointed that uh, she didn't, she only, I only made, I normally made 20% a year for her for, I don't know, six, seven years. Uh, but it's crazy. Single, yeah, she said, you, only made, money. you only made three, there's another one of my many wives, that was a different wife, but uh, you only made up 3%. It's like everyone else was down 50% at the lows. Right. You know, and it was, right. it was early 2009. It was another big wave down to come. People don't March. Like, you know, everybody else is down. You're up 3%. I can't short. I can't do options. I can't, you know, do anything in it for you. It was just right. I realized at that moment I would never do that for anyone again. If your own wife doesn't appreciate 2008. You know, I think I feel the same way. People have always asked me. I've had people offer me money. I, I, the stress, It's trading is lifestyle. The first group that I ever had, Steve, like of guys that were at my house talking about trading was called Lifestyle by Design. Nobody really knows that because it's like a Facebook group. It was very small. It was, this is like literally nine, ten years ago. And 
right? I mean, why did we call it that? Because we felt like we got into trading to really just get control of our time back because time is the most valuable currency that we operate within. So any type of job that you do, not to talk shit on, you know, working a job, but you're working, like you said, you're selling your time for a paycheck that someone else determines where we all wanted to align. And what we all are, and all of our listeners feel the same pull to is we want to get our money to be working for us so we can take back control over the time. So I think that when you get into trading for that reason, going down the fund route or going down the route of managing money, you start to get away from your why. You start to get away from your reasoning for getting in this business in the first place. It's just to have freedom, not have to work for somebody else, enjoy a good life with your family. If that's now, there's guys like my younger brother who works at Raymond James now and like is getting all these designations and all of these licenses and stuff because he wants to start a fund. Some people want to do that. But like you said, you just got to be tapped into yourself. You got to know yourself, right? Would you ever start a fund, Tom? Would that ever be something you'd want to do? No. Just again, purely because of like Steve just said and all the paperwork. And I've got a couple of friends that have run their own financial advisor business. And every time the market goes down, they have people picking up the phone, giving them shit. All What's day going on, Tom? What's like... going on, Tom? You're like, bro, relax. Like, no, I don't know. We're just riding the market. Right. And they're just the advisors. They're not the people that are responsible for making or losing the money. They're so just I'm, the salesmen. Not right. for me. No, right. no, 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 no. But with the scalability now from these firms, put aside the part about if they're a book or B book. I mean, there's a, there is now a very valid argument to be like, why would I go raise a fund when I can just get funded? Like, why would I take my family and friends money when I can just get funded? You know? Yeah. I think, I think you can save yourself a lot of headaches. And ultimately, if I think if you can make 10, 15, 20% a year for getting hold of it, capital is not going to be an issue. I wouldn't have thought over time. And as the, these prop firms are getting better and, things are getting more accessible. It just depends whether that's what you want to do. Um, it's not a route that I choose. I would want to go down for me personally, I don't think. Yeah. Steve, have you found anybody? I've had a couple of people that I've encountered that have gotten themselves in trouble with with regulatory bodies, we'll say, the government. Do you, so you've, since you've been around so long, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of guys that are on the internet that end up getting fined or sued or for something like that. There's been many companies that have come and gone, yet you're still here. So what do you think is one of the key characteristics to staying alive in this business when so many people, even without starting a fund, fall down a rabbit? Like the guy, one of the guys I used to work with at T3, you remember Steve, when I was at T3, that's how we met. One of the guys there got took a couple hundred thousand dollar fine like a two a year or two ago for getting out of a stock while he was telling people in his room to get in it, something like that. I know a guy in Alaska, very similar, like like young guy like me, stole money from his friends and family. You can Google it. It's one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in Alaskan history. They were pulling FBI agents from the lower 48 to go up there. So why are all these people going and getting in trouble? Is it that easy or is it just very easy to to fall down the bad rabbit hole? You know what I mean? I think it's greed, like American greed, love American mm. greed, like so many people are in that situation where they need that steady income. I mean, that addiction of that paycheck, it's like crack cocaine, you know, they don't have the money to, to have their lifestyle and it's not easy pickings in the market. Trading is a heck of a grind. And, uh, 
it's easy. I've seen so many people that I've seen in you know the education industry get in trouble is because they give direct investment advice to people instead of you. You can be a trading coach. You can teach. You know, I've only done a very tiny bit of consulting after being talked into it a few times, but I'm not giving you any investment advice. I'm just telling you. I'm not making any claims on my past. I don't have any audit. Audit my 30 years. I have the capital and I'm financially independent. I don't have an audit of 30 years. I'm not going to make any claims on what my returns were. And I'm not going to give you investment advice because that will get you in trouble. You cannot make claims that are not verified and audited. Uh, and uh, I don't make any specific claims whatsoever. And, right. It's uh, like the people who can't... say, I'll, I'll give you 100% return a year, like in their marketing. Like they promise things. Like they're so stupid. It's like you're you're asking to get in trouble when you put things like that in your emails. You know what I mean? Yeah. Three, three or four got into serious trouble. I'm not going to mention any names, but like having the jets. Got show I know who you're talking about. If, if you've been oh, around, the... everybody knows now when you say that. We all, you don't have to say the name, but they, all, they got busted because like when you go around saying – I'm going to teach you to trade options and make 3000% this year. It's like, bro, like you're jumping tens of thousands of dollars into YouTube. You don't think someone is going to sue you or turn around and be like, you promised me this and didn't deliver. Yeah, that, that ends very quickly. That's so funny as I know in real life, so many uh, market wizards and uh, multi, multi decamillionaires, people with nine figure net worths. I know people that I know, no billionaires and none of them have, none of them show off their private jets on social media. None of them show off their sports cars. None of them. The it's hard to even get them to get on do. social media. They don't even want to get on social media once no, they reach. Because it's too much liability. The too much liability. Ratio. The risk reward ratio is terrible. Just like with me, I only do a couple of podcasts a year with people that I really know and like because of the it's the risk reward of going on podcasts now yep. in this uh -huh. in this environment yep. and saying uh -huh. something wrong or doing something wrong. It's just ridiculous. And like you said, there are no yeah. billionaires aren't. I don't know any billionaires. I think Bezos posted that one New Year's Eve picture or something. That's about you know all they do, all that the the really rich really do on social media. I wouldn't be on social media if it wasn't for trying to grow the business still, like the education side of the business. Because I, I remember like two or three years ago when I really felt like it was when people started – like I had a guy approach me in public once and like he knew me from social media and it freaked me and, and Riley out a little bit because he like came running across the store and like saw me. It was at Ikea, I think, and it freaked me out a little bit. And it was like now that the business is growing and we're not you know struggling as much – do we need this? Because now we're putting, like you said, risk reward. We're putting myself out there. I'm very cautious now about what I post and where I'm at and what, like letting people know what I'm doing. It's very, very, like, especially now I have a kid coming, Steve, got to be very aware of that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've had, I've had all kinds of phone people call me like, how in the world do you get my phone number? Right, bro. Like, it's so letters weird. To, mail letters to a house that I live in at the time. And I've had four different houses since in the last five years, I had four different houses. So I try to like not even update my addresses and places right. because it's just weird, man. Like you said, it's really creepy and people weird. People will find yeah, it's just yeah. really strange, so like you said, but I mean, I I enjoy having a public platform. I think it's the future. I thought it was the future since I started on Twitter uh, 12 years ago. Like you, everyone needs for whatever they do. I think they do need a platform of some nature. But like you said, I would not give out too much information about your family, your children, where you live, exactly where you're at. I would not do that. But no, I, bro, do I think I mean, it's important to everybody have a I, I've seen platform. some of these guys, they, they like – I mean I'm very – happy when people that I know or that follow us come up to like I had a guy at the Tampa Bay Rowdies game a couple of weeks ago he ran up on me Steve and like I was with my wife who's pregnant and my big friend his name is Jay Jay is like normally like the guy like he's always making jokes he's like I'm your bodyguard bro I got you meanwhile when this guy comes running up on me and grabs me from behind like saying hello he was being friendly Jay is nowhere to be found so I'm like oh my god what's about to happen and he's just a guy that knows me from the internet I saw him by, on his face and he looked at me like we had known each other forever. And I looked at him and I'm like, 
who are you? Like, just because you know me and I put my face on my, my stuff on the internet and I'm very personal, a lot of people aren't like that. So I don't know them and they think they know me, you know? So it's a little weird sometimes it gets, exactly. it gets hairy. Yeah. You're, you're more like Gary V. You're very front camera facing. I am like, you can tell right now, I'm not big front camera facing. I don't have any, I think I'm on like one or two maybe video interviews in 12 years. I don't want people see as I'm that's a record. My- like you got to keep that streak going just because it's a streak now. Like that's the person who gets you on a video interview next. I hope it's me or some conference we do or something. That'll be very like, that's momentous right there. That's like pinnacle moment. We need to pin that somewhere on a timeline. You know, Steve Burns shows his face again. Yeah, you were, you were close. I just had to like, uh, to, I didn't know too lazy to go get a beard trim and a haircut. You were, you were close. <laughs> I was close. I'll keep, I'll keep shooting. But you don't you know, need to worry on, about beard close. trims or yeah, haircuts on about this a podcast. Beard trim here, Steve. Come on. Look <laughs> at this. This is the homeless podcast. You didn't know? I was thinking and thinking like, how do I tell Austin of all people like, well, my hair's sort of shaggy and I need to get a beard trim. <laughs> that was not going to fly with me. No, it's not, not going to fly. You're the guy to, to tell that to. But, no. uh, yeah. And also I have this, I have somebody, they dynamic, like a cat shows up and right. when I'm trying to do these recordings. I, you got to close them all out. Yeah. yeah. You'll be yeah. seeing me swatting this cat the whole time. She was playing with a starfish. It's like, <laughs> this, I mean, it's just trying to, I was trying to go outside to do it. So I get away from all the pets and uh, then it was raining outside. It's like, just, I saw I only do a few a year i remember why i only do like this is only a third probably my last one this year and uh but i mean i enjoy talking to the people i do talk to i do enjoy the conversations and talks with you guys thank you no we we enjoy them with you too and i mean you have helped me and and our community continue to grow i mean you've sent a lot of people to me i've sent a lot of people to you and nobody ever complains so that's a really good mutually beneficial relationship from both sides and you have introduced me to some really smart traders, like people that I think I never would have known. So you do the whole industry a good service, Steve. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows you for that reason. You know, that's why you're popular. Now, what's coming, Steve? Let's talk about the future. Because I know the courses are selling on New Trader U. We mentioned that already. We know maybe we're pausing on a book right now. What's coming? Can we catch you at any conferences soon? Remember, I was trying to get you to maybe come do one with us maybe next year or something, something like that. What else do you have cooking? I would, I would might show up to something. I'm in the I'm in the uh, the Gulf, the uh, you know around the Pensacola Gulf nice. Breeze nice. area as well. Matt, something ever came close enough to here, and I can get my motivation up enough and go out and venture out in the in the hard world. I might do if something was close enough. I think, and I thought, man, I almost live close enough to Austin to, to uh, you're not that to far you to have lunch. But then you're I not... found out you are farther from me in Florida than I was from you in Tennessee or something. Really? Yeah, I guess because when We're... you're over in Pensacola and I'm down in Tampa, it's far because you got to go up and over. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I've got a, I got a place in uh, Pensacola and in Gulf Breeze. Nice. I'm trying to get back down to one place, so I'll probably nice. be Gulf Breeze. Uh, nice. Uh, the Gulf, but I think where are you? What city are you in? I'm in St. Pete, right, right, like south of Tampa. And that's one of the places we actually looked at in the last it's five awesome. years. My wife, my wife's been looking. It was, uh, yeah, St. Petersburg was the other one. She was like, uh, I think Tampa's another area. I know real estate market's smoking hot in Tampa. So, so, my, yeah. I had a friend buy a property here, a real estate agent who's in Colorado. He bought something here before it was even finished. He flipped it for like an extra 200 grand. It was like a $500,000 house, flipped it for like 650, 700 without even doing anything. The market here is crazy. And everywhere else, I mean, you hear people all over housing, recession house. My brother-in-law is a real estate agent. He's still got leads coming in without doing any work. So Florida is in this area specifically, is just crazy. It's different. It's just different. 
Have you seen the odd uh, geographic things for the real estate market? It's wet. It's uh, west of Austin is down and, and east of Austin is up, even in New England area. That's a really odd demographic I've seen. It's the first why year. Ever been, no, this is good. A divergent of real estate. Usually the U.S. real estate is pretty close for like some hot cities and hot areas. Right. But that's really odd that it would diverge. Like you did. You voted with your with your move. A lot of people did the same thing. The country is, uh, as you know, the, the political situation that we're living through, it shapes the trading environment that we have to deal with for sure. Look at this year on SPX. It's sideways between, what, 3,800 and 4,200. Today, what are we, 4,140? Maybe we get close to 4,200, but probably come right back down because 2023 is the year. We had Brian Shannon on last week. Like I said, he said 2022 is the year that would bleed you out. 2023 is the year that will chop you out. So with the market this choppy, yeah. with all the macro things, whether we talk about the war with Russia, or we talk about the political situation here, there's uncertainty everywhere. Nobody knows what's going on. You know? Oh, did you did you see what caused the uh, the shortfall in income for the treasury to keep paying for the debt ceiling? What the biggest it? shortfalls came, which I was I was thinking last year with that sideways chop was like the capital gains. The capital gains, you know, the normal people, investors buy the dipper, did not have the capital gains. That was a huge shortfall for the treasury income for taxes. And the the other was the margins crushing businesses, the cost of goods, cost of labor, crushed them. So the profits, which most people don't even understand, the profit margins did not. Did not uh, come in for enough corporate taxes either. So, I mean, those were huge shortfalls. That's why this debt ceiling is going to be a lot faster than they anticipated. Yep, yep. I mean, they've raised the debt ceiling 90-something times since World War II. So when they talk about are we going to raise the debt ceiling or not, I kind of think it's like clickbait title fear porn thing where it's like, yeah, we're going to raise it. That's what we do. We just print more money and raise the debt ceiling. What do you mean? Why would now be the time we stop? You think Joe Biden's going to stop that? No way. No way. Right? They want to. They want to end the financial. I mean, I, I can't even. The somebody somebody messaged me like, "What would happen to the stock market if they didn't raise the debt ceiling, defaulted on the U.S. Uh, debt?" And I said, "The stock market crashing would be the least of your concerns if they right. let the U.S. default on the interest payments." But they have so many ways to do that. So many they would have to go out of their way to make sure there was no way to pay the interest on the debt payments and default. Correct. That would be the dumbest thing. But they, anything's possible. I mean, that'd be the black swan of the ages. Which did is you see virtually that's impossible? Virtually impossible. Yeah, yeah. But did you see? I saw. Um, I think it was Montana this week that made it state law. So not federal law, but state law that you don't pay taxes on Bitcoin transactions. I believe that happened this week. Do you think there's going to be more states that do stuff like that that favor crypto, or do you think there's going to be government crackdown on crypto? I think there's already states pivoting to not only Bitcoin, like you said, but there's also gold and silver. I think it was Arkansas I mean, like and Texas too. I think that they're even talking about a, a actual go back to a metal-based currency that, that can be transacted with. Yep. I mean, that's wow. some smart moves because this fiat fiat marks to I don't know where this this fiat game is going because it's escalating. It'll be those the charts on the amount of money in circulation and in savings and on the money supply is just like nothing I've ever thought was possible. And they wonder why they're they better be glad there's only ten percent or eight percent, seven percent inflation. Because a lot of things are up twenty to forty percent. I don't know how they figured inflation's now. It's not the way they did in the seventies. No, and and now you look at you couple that great point, and you couple that with. 350, closer to 400,000 people have been laid off this year, which is the most since 2001, but unemployment is at the lowest since 1969. How does that make any sense? Well, it's the way that they read the numbers. Yeah, the, they, there's 7 million 
uh, prime working age men, just men, 7 million that are not participating in the workforce, not counted as unemployed, not counted, only counted in the participation rate, which the, the participation rate is the real rate to see what unemployment is. And like, what in the world are they doing? I'm sure there's some crypto bros. That's what I was just sure going to say, day, <laughs> like degenerate day trader bros living in their mom's basement still. Yeah, or there, there's probably some uh, NFT millionaire. I mean, I'm sure there's people, entrepreneurs, people like mowing grass under the table or doing their own businesses. I'm sure there's entre half of them maybe entrepreneurs of some nature now with so many ways to make money in the world. But uh, but they, but they don't really like you said they don't count those as unemployed anymore. Like they don't those aren't real statistics. You have like the and that that shortfall of uh, income tax revenue really shows something is not right in the numbers. What does it tell you more? Like explain that more because I'm not I don't follow that 100 percent. Yeah, if you have record unemployment, you should have record tax revenues. If everyone's working and everyone's paying taxes, which I guess by 50, 49% of people do not pay any income tax, right? but they still have withheld, they have withholdings, even if right. they get it back. For sure. But how could you at the simultaneously have the, the best unemployment rate, the best job market ever, and at the same time have short, have huge shortfalls of tax income tax revenues that couldn't even get the treasury through to what Janet Yellen first thought she was going to go several more months. Now she's down to like one month. So that I don't understand how that's possible. That makes that's a great point. That makes no sense. If everybody's working, there should be more tax money than ever. Yeah, the greatest, the greatest in federal and at the federal level too, because they get in everybody's pocket in every state. You could say, you know, Florida doesn't have state income tax, and Tennessee don't have state. Seven states don't have state income tax at least. You know, you can say they don't have state income tax, but you, the federal government gets a piece of everybody. 100%. And you can't write off state income tax anymore either. So nope. that's that's a lot of things I ponder, like the the numbers. I'm a numbers quantitative analysis guy in everything I do, and some things just don't make sense. And then it makes you wonder if it doesn't make sense to us, and we're just like the average Joe, quote unquote why does it make sense to them? Like, where's their logic? And then I wonder, maybe there isn't logic because a lot of them are like 80 years old, you know? And when you're 80, like I wouldn't pick an 80 year old to make a logical decision. If you had a lineup, I'd actually probably go with a 16 year old, 17, 18 year old before the 80 year old. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's pretty shocking where the, you know, from an, and I look at politics like economics. That's really my politics is from an economic quantitative analysis standpoint. I would want to bring, uh, I'm, I'm like in the middle, I'm like a money ball libertarian. You know, I think anything the government is needed, but it's like quantifiably what they do should be good. What is the return on investment? Who are their customers? Should be productive citizens, taxpayers? And what are the, what effect do they have to be rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior and put money in to get returns? I don't understand why that's been abandoned. Uh, it's completely, it's pretty fascinating to watch. Like I think economics should be the driver of politics for everyone's right. well-being. I agree. When they, when the federal government fails their audit three years in a row, punishment. There has to be a punishment. If that was a regular business, they would be punished for that, whether it's through fines or owed in taxes, whatever it would be. But the government just, oh, they failed. On to the next. There's, it, there's no consequence. So why would they change? You know, because I, I, and then I think about, like you, we talked about earlier, ego and power in trading. It's the same thing when it comes to economics. Powell has an ego. He's thinking about his legacy. He doesn't want to be the one. No one wants to be known as the one that ruins the whole party. You know what I mean? The, the whole show we have going on makes the stage come crashing down. But that's what, like Peter Schiff always says, that's what someone needs to do. We need to pump the brakes, deal with some short-term pain in order to set ourselves up for longer-term success, or we're just going to get smoked. And really, it's smoked by China. Because now look at all the countries that want to join BRICS. Look at all the countries that China has made trade deals with. China is slowly... I heard this guy, Andy something, he's a CIA guy on a podcast, and he was saying the way China operates, they move so slow, you're in their landslide before 
you ever have a chance to know and then it's too late you're already in the landslide getting taken down the road and that's like we're we're out here dealing with all these stupid social issues that really are irrelevant that other developed countries just don't deal with and we're getting left behind it's it's tough but you and me are in a good place steve or at least we're in florida we're going to be the final homestand for for america here here at texas yeah, the it's the this this freedom. I mean, that's really the politics is the freedom. And like I think Thomas was saying, like freedom of time, freedom of location, you know, freedom, financial freedom. I mean, I think it comes down to me is like freedom in all areas. Uh, it's what I really look for in everything I do. Like I said, running a fund would take away a lot of freedoms of having to be, you know, talk to people and you know make them happy. You know, that's what I really and my biggest filter for my entire life. And I think you talk about this a lot in the trading aspect is happiness. Your filter is happiness. Yeah, I'm not going to, I didn't work my whole life after 30 years of, uh, of of working and doing all kinds of different things and in industries and and books and doing all the stuff I've done in investing trading to go, you know, sit in front of my screen nine hours a day and day trade. You know, I did not do that to my, my ultimate goal. Right. Most of successful traders, day traders, even I know, I think you're one of them, you know, trade for maybe the opening hour, you know, or trade the close or something, maybe for an hour, hour and a half and go on with their life. And I think quality of life, like you have to understand the cost of screen time and whatever you trade and, and stomach lining. You know, some people can't be trend followers because they can't take the big pullbacks inside of a large trend. Right. You know, some people can't be day traders because they don't want to sit and stare at a screen for several hours a day right. and have high pressure moves to make immediately in the speed and the hot key and your edge is speed and they don't want the pressure of speed. They'd rather be a swing trader, buy the clothes, see how it goes. So I think that's a big filter for people listening is whatever you choose to do and trading might not be for you. You may not be happy being a trader in any, any aspect. You may not, you may hate uncertainty too much and risk and not be able to do losses, but whatever you do, I think the ultimate filter for everything we do is, ha is happiness and whatever that means for us. And most people are happier when they're active, creating, doing things, creating value, making other people happy relationships. And I think that's what the ultimate filter is for everything we do. And what our trading system itself needs to fit into whatever makes us happy in the so lifestyle true. that we aspire to, because that's what this is really all about. Because you don't want to end up like, I love Crudelli, but you don't want to end up like Crudelli, heart attack at the desk at 30 something years old, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's making it just can be making it way more harder than it needs to be. Cause I guess there's every conceivable type of trader imaginable, you know, Basso, Mr. Serenity outliving the dream is catching the big trends in one direction. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I had a I had a bunch of, you know, early on, I was a big position trader and trend trader. That's what I did. I mean, but that was a different the 90s were a different environment. The different 2003 environment. Three to 2007. Sure. It was just different environment. A lot of things that I've learned my my people, uh, you know, William O'Neill, Jesse Livermore, um, uh, a lot of all the trend followers, you know, uh, the people that I study, a lot of that stuff. It just you can go a long time. They're not working anymore. And you have to find new strategies in different time frames to make money because things will quit working and or even will go into a desert time for a year or two where they won't work. So you have to have a very diversified watch list, signals and strategies if you want to try to continue to make profits in uh, over the long term. And, and amazingly, you will have losing months as a trader and losing trades for everyone. So it is a, uh, it's, you're battling uncertainty, you're battling volatility, you're battling stress. And some of the biggest psychological mistakes that people make trading come from simply trading too big. That's one of the, if you trade the right size, that solves a lot of psychological problems of trading. And a lot of trading too big comes from ego. And not understanding the expectancy of losses, and that's those are two areas uh, that people think about have to filter through with trading psychology. It comes simple if you get to the big macro issues inside of trading psychology. So, last question then for you, Steve. That was so well said. Yeah, would you, 
So well said. Would you say that now is a good time to learn how to trade for the new traders out there that, of course, see your stuff? Everybody sees your stuff. Maybe just seeing me. What is it a good time to trade when the markets are sideways and everything we've talked about? So much doom and gloom. Do you still think it's a good time to get into it? I think it's always a good time to get into it because you're going to learn and you want to you want to do your worst trading small so you can learn your biggest lessons when you're small. You know, I learned some of my biggest lessons uh, in the in the March 2000 fall and all the chaos into all the way into 2002 brutal bear. I learned the stuff I learned there, and I and I thought I was doing really well at a really young age and had a lot of good years of compounding. But uh, what I learned through that really had me come back like just a beast in 2000 uh, 2003 when the market turned around. I mean, it just really gangbusters and those lessons but i mean i had the 250 percent drawdowns in my career which is the last thing i want to do mm. and i did it twice in a in two different accounts 50 percent drawdowns but the lessons i learned made me i tell you that so i think it is a good time to trade but you got to be learning learn the lessons and the first thing you'll probably learn is you're trading too damn big and you have no damage and trading too much Trading too often. <laughs> trading too much. That's yeah. another overtrading. You've been, yeah, those are all you'll learn. If you faster, you can learn those lessons and do it small and get us and then learn like, oh, and I don't know how many people come to me, lose their whole accounts and come to me. And then I say, you know, you have to develop a quantified system with an edge and trade it with proper position sizing and figure out what your expectancy and profit factor are. And they're like, really? It's like, yeah, you do that before you trade. You do that, you know, when you're learning, you do that. You don't do that. You don't lose all your money then say, oh, this is a business. <laughs> It's always driven in data. Tom and I are big about that. And Tom's been doing a lot of studies recently about um, consecutive bars, consecutive days in a row, Tom, right? Just how, yeah, just trying to understand how markets move. Um, just different little assets move differently, join different Small little nuances, right? Like this is small details that we've been trading for how long together, Tom, and we never talked about this. And now we're getting to this layer. It's like an onion. Just keep pulling it back. Yep. It's got layers. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting seeing the markets. Like, there's a big difference between markets that trend and markets that don't, and it just sticks out. It screams it out in the data as well. And like trading, as trading, trending strategies on pairs that don't trend is like a recipe for disaster. And yeah, it's great. It's been interesting. I yeah, one of the. Go sorry, on. no, you go, Tom. I was gonna. Um, I was just gonna ask a question of uh, Steve. Obviously, been sit here and um, listening to everything that's going on. You talk about quantified your a lot of your approach is quantified but you also understand that you've got quite a good sort of fundamental understanding from just listening to you speak so what's the sort of the percentage split between technical and fundamental in your trading and like 2023 steve yeah, my, my core really came from uh, William O'Neill's Can Slim system. We're finding those individual stocks that can outperform based on the historical stocks that outperform based on their fundamentals, you know, and uh, the indexes themselves and how they perform historically based on the system itself. Like the SP 500 brings in new winning stocks, takes out old stocks. That's part of the system of indexes. So I do use fundamentals for individual stocks and for indexes to create my watch list. So you will get to my watch list most of the time through fundamentals. Every now and then I'll have something that's just a good trading vehicle, which is which is rare, but overall. But my fundamentals can get you on my watch list, but only good technical signals can get you get me trading you on my watch list. So wow. my my fundamentals is more my filter for what I trade. My technicals is the filter for when I enter and when I exit. Fundamentals tell me what to trade. Technicals tell me when to trade it. I like nice. that answer a lot. Yeah. William O'Neill gets so much credit 
for successful stock traders, like anyone listening that wants to trade stocks should study William O'Neill, right, Steve? Like everyone gives this guy credit. Yeah, he's, he's, he did the quantitative analysis. He studied. He didn't just come up with his opinions. He studied what were the greatest stocks in the history of the stock market based on perform historical performance. He he uh, the was it AAII did a study. You know they studied it, and his system worked better than any other. He also has technical parameters for entering cup and handles, uh, buying dips of the fifty-day moving average. He has technical uh, ways to buy them, and uh, you know he did the work on the fundamentals. And the and the testing of chart patterns. So he is the guy. He got very rich, had a huge consultant firm, legend. And he's also in the he studied Jesse Livermore, Nicholas Darvis, you know, all the other legends that we all follow. So yeah, that is a must read for any stock stock traders. Is he alive? Is William O'Neill still alive? He is he is old, but he is still alive. Wow. He is, but he is he, he kept on going. I see he's like Buffett and Munger, just keep on going. They're just happy. Happiness will make you live a long time. It will, bro. Even to... like Charlie Munger, his one eye looks like it's about to fall out every time I look at him. And I'm like, dude, this guy, I don't understand how they put him up on stage like that. But he he's still <laughs> kicking. And when he speaks, that is an older guy that I would trust to make logical decisions. You know what I mean? You compare him to, not to be political, Joe Biden, he's stumbling on stage. And Charlie Munger's pulling a whole stadium full of people to be quiet and just listen to him at however old he is, 80-something years. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's The happiness must keep the mind sharp, maybe. Right, Steve? Yeah, I think I think it actually epigenetics shows that happiness turns on good genes and make you live a long time. I mean, being happy can make you live longer than being a vegan or exercising. So many focus on that. When uh, yeah, that's the quote of the episode, Steve. <laughs> being, what did you say? Being happy can make I'm, you live longer than being a vegan. Vegan. Yeah. That's the wow. that's on the thumbnail. That's so good, Steve. So good. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. It's so true. The people who are old and like still kicking and aren't in, in walking around with a walker, they laugh a lot. They do dance classes. They have, but I think it's also, they are social. And maybe this is something to kind of finish up on too, Steve, like the, the social aspect of traders, like you being willing to communicate and do the podcast with us, getting around other traders and building a reputation that then you get known to other successful traders as being a legitimate trader. I think that's huge because like my happiness comes from other people. And I think that's at least a part of it. Like when I work with other people, when I help them, when I see them doing well on things that we work on, it makes me feel like fulfilled, maybe not happy, but fulfilled. And I think because we're social creatures, we need that community, that camaraderie, like nothing feels better. Like when me and Tom are in the group chat and somebody that wants to get funded with us, they pass the challenge. I'm like ripping my shirt off. It's like I scored a goal. Like it's nothing feels better than that. So I think happiness and social like camaraderie and teamwork and community is really important. So what would be something you could say, Steve, to new traders on finding a community? There's a lot. You can find the best one for you and ask someone you trust. Find someone who's knowledgeable in the trading sphere, who is familiar with everybody and say, hey, you know, I'm a Forex trader, day trader. You know, do you know a good community for me? You know, find somebody you trust and find something that fits you because you don't want to be a Forex day trader and go into a trend following community of stocks or, or commodities. You know, you want to find the right fit. It's really all about catering to your to yourself. The, the, uh, I guess uh, you have to ask the right questions. That's the thing. Everybody's worried about Chad GPT. Like Chad GPT is only as good as the prompt and question you ask it. And I have learned so much people do not even know what the right questions are to ask in trading, much less know the answers to the questions. They have to learn the right questions first. Love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Tom, anything else you want to hit Steve with before we wrap up? But I think this has been great. Yeah, I didn't realize it was already an hour. 
yeah, one last one for all of the listeners then. Top three book recommendations on anything, seeing as you've read thousands. It can be your own. Uh, trading books? Yeah, any books. Any books, if you want. I would, I would say for this audience, probably, I would stick with uh, the ones that give you the core market the first market wizards jack swager i mean that is the you could hear right from the best traders i got a heck of a thunderstorm going on here uh market wizards by jack swager get the best traders of that generation give you their advice he did an amazing job with that uh trend following by michael covell the the, how he explains what profitable trading is and shows the data can help anyone use those principles for any type of trading actually looking at the data he also goes directly to the most successful trend following traders so you want to go to the sources and like you said uh uh the uh, william o'neill book uh, how to make money in stocks shows you how to find the best winning stocks of the last hundreds of years that's one i gotta read thank you that one's on yeah that great list steve great list i gotta read that last one for sure even though I'm not trading stocks right now, I got to read that. All right, boys, this has been great. Steve, it's always a pleasure. I really appreciate you giving us the time. I know the audience does. What I like to do at the end of the episode is I will, of course, put links to your Twitter and your website below, even though most people definitely follow you. And what we'll do is for everyone listening, hit us in the comments with some questions or topics that you'd like us to discuss with Steve next time we have him on. Maybe we'll catch up early 2024, something like that. Steve will probably have a new book coming out at that point, or if not, he'll be working on it because we know we can't sit still for too long. Right, Steve? Yeah, it's like there's only so much TV or things, hobbies you can do. It's like I get bored. Either that or Steve's going to pick up paddle boarding or something like that and become like a pro <laughs> paddle boarder in Florida, pro kayaker or something. He'll have a bunch of hobbies and then no more books at all. But either way, guys, you want to make sure you're following Steve. I'll put those links down below. We appreciate you. Again, Steve, Tom, thank you for being here. And for all the listeners, thank you very much. We will see you in the next episode. Bye.